Hey, Teddy. Hey, Nick. Do you remember I Kissed Dating Goodbye? Oh, God. I forgot about that. Welcome to Oh God, I Forgot About That, the podcast that explores artifacts from turn-of-the-millennium Christian culture. Hey, everyone. It's Teddy, something Greek. Well, this is a bit embarrassing. I'm here to note a mistake we made in our prior Rebecca St. James episode. In our close reading of the music video, we make a passing comment that Rebecca and her potential future husband embrace at the end of the music video. (laughs) This was wrong. In fact, interestingly, it's kind of the opposite. Obviously, the tone suggests that they find each other in the end, but in the music video itself, they're never actually in the same physical space and don't really directly, explicitly find each other in the music video. It's important and kind of suggests that the tone is that Rebecca is still waiting, a detail that we would have really liked to discuss, particularly within the analysis of Wait For Me as a Christian fairy tale. We're bummed we didn't get to talk about it. We're sorry we overlooked it. But if you'd like to continue the discussion on our socials, we'd love to engage with you. Thanks, and sorry about that. So, Teddy... Did you actually forget about I Kiss Dating Goodbye or is it just something you wish you had forgotten about? So I did and I didn't. What I remember is a dude with a fancy hat on the cover of a lovely book. And I remember a lot of people reading it. And I remember it being part of a sort of bigger narrative and conversation about purity culture. But I'm going to be honest that I actually don't remember specifics. And I am assuming today is going to make me feel that I am very lucky for that. (laughs) Uh, I will tell you ahead of time, you are very lucky. And to all of our listeners who did not have the, um, I'll use the Christian term, the joy of this uh, particular challenge uh, in your adolescence, you are all very lucky. For me, I Kissed Dating Goodbye was uh, kind of definitional for my adolescence. Mm. It was something that a bunch of the homeschool families that I was with, you know, a bunch of us teenagers uh, had read it. It was actually a little old by the time I was a teenager and I was of dating age to have this conversation. The book came out in 1997. Mm, Okay. So I was still pretty young. So by the time I read it, it was early 2000s that I read it about five or six years later. Mm -hmm. It really impacted uh, Mm -hmm. my relationships uh, with with women. I mean, I'll be honest, even with men, you know, it changed the dynamic of how I was able to associate with people. Mm -hmm not just on my own psyche, right? This is one of those books that was, to use Harris's own words, like culture changing Mm. for adolescents in evangelical circles. Mm -hmm. From your own memories and sort of your own intuitions, what does this title evoke for you? I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Right. You really well described the the cover of it. It's that, you know, mm-hmm. fancy hat and the floral script and Yeah. Very like old fashioned, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. it's sepia toned in the original yeah, publication. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like a brownish, yeah. 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 So what does that um 
just evoke in you sort of on a reactionary level? I kiss dating goodbye. Okay. So um, immediately it's about marriage. Immediately it's about giving something up. Um, immediately, you know, and I can't, so I'm having a hard time with this book, like what it actually said versus what it was connected to, because the phrase for me, that's like most memorable is the kiss part. And I think that that's because this book, it sparked a sort of like, uh, new level unlocked in like purity (laughs) culture Olympics. Right. So it was like, not only do you save yourself, like you don't have sexual intercourse, right. It unlocked this like new level of commitment in the purity culture to aspire to of saving. And maybe this is getting too specific and we can talk about it later, but like saving the actual kiss for the wedding day. Mm -hmm. So in my church, you know, there was this whole group of people who like, you know, took purity culture even two steps further. And when I think about those people and the conversations I had with that particular group of people, um, the people who I would have said, you know, were truly competing in the purity culture Olympics. Mm -hmm. This was their driving force. This book, like this was the the thing, you know, that was like, yes, the true one, the true, you know, people who are committed. Joshua Harris, they Mm -hmm. read Joshua Harris. So, yeah, that's what sticks out to me. Yeah, I think you described that really well. Um, Harris has mentioned that his inspiration, the influence for him to write this book was actually a True Love Waits uh, conference that he went to. Oh, okay. Back in, I believe it was 94 was the Washington, D.C. event that he went to. Mm. So True Love Waits is a predecessor and, and surely the, the idea of sexual abstinence didn't become invented with Harris's book. Right. He just jumped into a conversation that was already happening. And I think the best way to describe this book in terms of the whole of purity culture is this is the most well-marketed version of uh, the message, Mm. right? Um, The title is catchy as hell. Mm. It's evocative. (laughs) It's that idea of, abstaining from physicality uh one of the phrases that i I stumbled across in researching this was it uses that sexual desire to sell abstaining from sex right right yeah so is he actually saying something different than all of the other books that are because in my brain i mean and it is the power of marketing right probably but in my brain he's a sort of like origin story but i don't think that's actually the case he's not the first person to be saying a lot of this no he's not you know he'll even throughout the book reference other books that even have purity in the title one book he returns to often is um a book by i believe it's elizabeth elliott from the 80s the early 80s called purity and passion oh i remember that he even goes so far back as to reference books from the 20s that have purity at their focus so the purity movement the the sexual abstinence movement is decades old by the time he enters it he does i think add something novel aside from like marketing it well, which is uh, the movement towards something as opposed to just abstaining. Mm. The main conceit of the book, um, at least as Harris pitches it in the book, is not just saying 
I don't want to date, but I want to do this other thing that he'll loosely define as courting Mm -hmm. instead. Right. He wants to build a model for what Christian romantic relationships look like. Yeah. It's kind of brilliant, actually. You know, it really is. Yeah. So much was about a we're not going to do X, Y, and Z, but then what the hell do you do? You know? And he was like, here it is. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah, I, I can imagine that being really appealing and it's a sort of recipe for success, you know, that he's putting, you know, saying this is, this is, this is what you do in replace of it. This is how we're going to be different. And this is the model that will render not only you getting to have sex one day, but also like this deep, deep, deep emotional intimacy. And I will even, I, you know, we'll get to this in a minute, but, um, he even does it beautifully without actually giving a model. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like for classic all Christian the, writer move. <laughs> yeah, I know. For all the faults in this book, perhaps the most, I don't want to say egregious because there are some egregious moments. Right. But I will say perhaps the most like subtle fault in this book is that he manages to market a new model without ever having a model without ever giving you anything in the end. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But, uh, that's, I think perhaps the thing that stuck with me, uh, most about this new read, right? Mm -hmm. I've returned to some of these ideas in other discussions and you and I have talked about this kind of stuff a lot. So I wasn't really surprised, but I was surprised at how, lackluster the positive prescriptions were in this Mm, interesting okay yeah Yeah. uh before we get into the book proper i have one last question and that's do you think that any of these loose ideas uh that we've sort of discussed already do you see that they impacted your relationships either romantic or on a friendship level in your you know adolescent pre-deconstruction days oh wow okay um so this is a hard one because like i said i don't have a strong memory of reading this book and having it impact me so anything i say of so I can talk about how purity culture impacted me and I can kind of like conflate that with Harris, but I can't necessarily say, and I think from, you know, our conversations in the past, I get a sense you had a more like explicit and direct, it had a more explicit and direct influence on you. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I definitely want to talk about that, but I kind of wanted to start with uh, you, not so much because of your connection, but because I actually think that your lack of connection to this specific artifact is telling of its influence. Mm. So perhaps a better way to think about this question is hold that in your mind. Okay. For, for what our discussion is and consider how the things that Harris says may have influenced your relationships, not your interaction to other people, but the way other people then related back to you, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, and I haven't entirely unpacked why this is, but it is actually peculiar that I haven't didn't read it and get super Mm. into it because I did all the other purity books. Mm -hmm. And looking back on it, there is something that happened in my mind where like I made it more of a boy book and I'm Mm -hmm. not entirely sure if that was something if that was like incorrect and flawed or if there was something 
circulating in our in our cert my particular Christian circle at the time that it seemed to be more of a book geared towards read by discussed by guys. But I wouldn't go as far to say it wasn't for me. Like it wasn't like every young man's battle or something. Right. But um it wasn't as frequently consumed and meaningful to girls, it seems. Like in my experience and memory, it's really much guys and parents of both mm-hmm. sexes that were yeah. reading. Yeah. So maybe you can, you know, I don't know if that is consistent with anything that, you know, in your observations, but um, yeah, it just wasn't a, it wasn't as much on my radar as much as anything else, mm-hmm. even though I know I was living in the midst of the culture it was creating, you know? I think that that's a, a really insightful thing because Harris definitely tries to uh, write this book from a both a genders perspective, right? I don't want to say a gender neutral perspective because he's very clearly not no, like not nuts yeah. no but he's very much trying to write this to both sides of the conversation okay. but there, it is a very masculine book in okay. tone and i think in some of its marketing right mm. I, I actually think that like the florid script and the reference to kissing in the title is actually trying to soften the masculinity of the book if that makes sense oh, okay yeah yeah, absolutely. So so my my experience with this book uh, in brief, because I could talk for a very long time about this, began, like I said, in, in like a homeschool group reading with other teenagers. Uh, parents had read it or known about it and sort of pushed it on us. And, and I don't mean pushed it on us as in they were aggressive. But if a parent hands you a book in a homeschooling environment, you have to read that book. Right. Like that's the way that's the way my mom always communicated with me. It was just here's a book. Enjoy this. Yeah. Now, my mom yeah. practically taught me how to read with The Hobbit. Right. Like that was her favorite book when she was growing up. And so we read it so many times that like my early uh, earliest recollections of reading were that book. So that's just sort of like how our parents communicated uh, their ideals and and what they wanted us to learn. From a young age, I knew that I didn't want to, I knew that I didn't want to date around. I didn't want to participate in what Harris was calling dating culture. Mm. I didn't want to just willy nilly give my heart and my body to people. You know, thinking back to our Rebecca St. James episode, I didn't want to be a piece of chewed up gum or used up right. duct tape. Right. right. And so as much as I like had crushes on on people throughout my adolescence, Every time I I tried to do anything to advance that, to say, hey, you know, I think you're an interesting person. I like you and I want to, you know, pursue courtship even, you know, uh, that was stymied. Uh, Mm. I had so many friends who were girls who broke up with me while we were friends because they didn't want a romantic relationship. And these weren't even people I necessarily like had romantic feelings for. Right. Or had the intention of pursuing. Right. It was just we were good friends of opposite sexes. Mm. And that was deemed too much of an investment emotionally. Man. Like I, I literally had a a girlfriend break up with me, not girlfriend, proper girl right, space right, friend. Right break up with me because she felt that our friendship might be perceived as a threat 
to her future husband. She was not dating anyone. My God, it made every relationship so suspect. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say sort of the culminating influence of Josh Harris on my life was the first girl I ever asked out. The conversation went like this. Hey, uh, I really like you and uh, I think you like me, too. And uh, so I think we should really talk about, like, what it'll mean for us to get married. That's how I asked out my first girlfriend. And you were how old? 18. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell, that relationship lasted three and a half years and we did get engaged. Wow. You really gave a piece of your heart away is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, We're going to talk about that giving a piece. I want to, I would language check that, but we're going to talk about that a little bit. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I gave everything to that. I finally had a person show interest back to me, Mm -hmm. not push me away immediately. And after only knowing this person for honestly, two months, three months, I basically proposed Mm. because I was under the (laughs) influence of this purity culture idea that the first person you date needs to be the person you married. And she'd already been through like two relationships in high school. And she was like, yeah, I really want, you know, my next person to be my husband, too. So, yeah, that sounds like and we were just there. That was it. (laughs) And we. I remember getting into arguments with her about how I was starting to say, I love you too soon. And we were spending too much time together. And like our arguments were basically, well, I mean, we did say we were going to get married. So I guess, you know, it makes sense that we're accelerating this at this pace. And Mm -hmm. like it was a foregone conclusion that we would get engaged. And so we never really checked to see how compatible we were. In fact, we're going to go through the pitfalls of dating culture that Harris believes exists. And one of the things that I found rereading this was most of these things that I fell into because Mm. I was trying to take Harris's approach. Yeah. Let's talk about this book proper. Okay. Teddy, I would like you to read this forward. Who was written by a dear friend of ours? My girl, Rebecca. Rebecca St. James. Okay. I, I actually, I'm glad to see this because I referenced in our other episode that they were like, you know, um, kind of collaborating. So I'm yeah. glad to see that. I, I wasn't wrong on that. So, okay. So Rebecca St. James, they were both single at the time. I don't know why they just didn't get married. It seems like the obvious solution. Um, okay, so she wrote her little introduction. Should I read the whole thing or what do you want me to read? Yeah, uh, read the first two paragraphs for me um, up to the word explain. Okay. I'm not going to do an Australian accent, even though I'm really, really tempted. Hi, darling. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> Hi. Okay, I know what you're thinking. I'll just skip these first few pages and get to the real stuff. Well, hold on. Just wait. This forward is in preparation for what you are about to read. Actually, that's exactly what this book is about. Waiting and preparation. The idea in these page, the ideas in these pages are actually quite revolutionary. I'm so glad this book is in your hands. It could save you from a lot of need, needless agony. 
It has the potential to change the mindset of our generation. It has already affected my life. Let me explain. Yeah. So without getting into like all the details of how it affected her life, first of all, her just wait drop there is fantastic. So good. So good at marketing, man. But again, that idea of like, just wait for it. Don't skip ahead and get to the good stuff. Just wait and read the crappy stuff at the beginning, too. Like, that's... Hey, now, this is good stuff right here. And you know what? She keeps going. I, she is so obsessed with this word, because remember, it was in our... um, uh, In that whole section I did in our other episode. Mm-hmm. Agony. She loves that word. Agony. Agony. Yeah. It's so intense. Agony. Agony. I actually... um would like you to, to just skip down to the next page where it starts page 10 and just okay. read the end of to the end of her forward for me. All right. So she says, I don't think I've ever read a book in which the author is more honest and real than Josh in this one. He tackles the hard issues, the tough questions on this confusing topic of, quote, to date or not to date, unquote. And he gives practical answers. Joshua Harris has a powerful way of sharing from his experience. And since he's our age, just out of the teen years himself, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> knows what he's talking about. One of the things I like the most about Josh's writing is that he brings it all back to the Bible, unlike me, and how we can really live what it says. And after knowing him for the last couple of years, I can truly say that he, quote, walks his talk, end quote. So get ready to be challenged and encouraged and prepare for your point of view to be taken on a ride. Thanks for sticking with me and enjoy. Stay strong. Rebecca St. James. First of all, I love that you picked up on her unlike me thing. I shouldn't actually write that in there, but like, yeah, sorry. Yeah. That's, no, 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 that's fine. Like that was one of our major critiques of Rebecca St. James. So considering that was a theme of that conversation, I kept mm-hmm. a very particular eye out for how oh, well Josh uses his Bible. Okay, great. And I will say, Josh, definitely uses asterisk his bible attempts to use yeah there's also another like really interesting thing that i find here and we talked about this as a theme of purity culture is just them not getting the idea of innuendo whatsoever no not We're reading all. a book about sexual purity and you end that by saying you're going to be taken for a ride enjoy <laughs> enjoy i also don't get the am, am i not understanding and since he's our age, she yep. says, just out of the teen years himself, he knows what he's talking about. What is what is she talking? What what is she even talking about? Yeah. Because he I, I'm not following. What is what does he know? What does this 20 year old homeschooling boy know? Well, exactly. And it's something that in recent years, and we'll talk about this at the end, um, that Harris has sort of lamented. He's like, imagine if when you were 20 years old, the way that you thought the world worked was published in front of millions of people you'd look like an idiot too and oh like that's God. totally true so true but so you picked up on that beautifully like what rebecca says here is that josh was viewed as this relationship guru because he was a young person and he was advocating for what seemed like very controversial or countercultural ways of looking at romance Mm. and so he became a guru and then i think i think it's exactly three years after the book was published he got married 
Right. So yeah, at least at least Rebecca really waited much longer. Right. Yeah. What is it? You said it was like eleven years after Just Wait. Right? Yeah. She like got married at like a very normal person age, like not a Christian yeah. kid age. Yeah. Harris got married at twenty two. Yeah. He wrote this book yeah. when he was nineteen. He got published news twenty, and he got married at twenty two. There's this sort of weird uh, uh, perspective of him again as a guru when he was just a kid you know yeah and that language kind of followed her around too you know people would say that about her and i think what's also going on here is like all of the young people in the secular world are having sex here are two young people who are abstinent and who are like willing to like make public that abstinence Mm -hmm. therefore you know look up to them type of thing yeah exactly that that language, the same like I'm just saying, the same language she uses to describe him is kind of weird language that also was used to characterize her. Was like she knows what she's talking about because she is young, but it's really because she's abstinent. I like that. That's good. Or, so, so they say whatever. Yeah. yeah. So they say. I mean, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I I do want to like this is a you know over 200 page long book, so we're gonna we're not gonna go so slowly through it. Okay. But. I want to actually discuss the first passage of this book. Oh, it's so canonical. Classic. (laughs) This is, you're right. It is in the canon, uh, dare I say, the pantheon of purity culture talking points. Um, So here's what I'd like to do I'm going to narrate this, I'm going to read through the first parts of it. Would you be willing to read Anna's parts so we can? play this out a little bit i do i will (laughs) i'm gonna read the narration and then i'm gonna read david you'll know when i'm being david it was finally here anna's wedding day the day she had dreamed about and planned for months a small picturesque church was crowded with friends and family sunlight poured through the stained glass windows and the gentle music of a string quartet filled the air anna walked down the aisle toward david joy surged within her This was the moment for which she had waited so long. He gently took her hand, and they turned toward the altar. But as the minister began to lead Anna and David through their vows, the unthinkable happened. A girl stood up in the middle of the congregation, walked quietly to the altar, and took David's other hand. Another girl approached and stood next to the first, followed by another. Soon, a chain of six girls stood by him, as he repeated his vows to Anna. Anna felt her lip begin to quiver as tears welled up in her eyes. Is, is this some kind of joke? She whispered to David. Um, I'm sorry, Anna, he said, staring at the floor. Who are these girls, David? What's going on? She gasped. They're, they're girls from my past, he answered sadly. Anna, they, they don't mean anything to me now, but... I've given a part of my heart to each of them. I thought your heart was mine. It is. It is, he pleaded. Everything that's left is yours. A tear rolled down Anna's cheek. Then she woke up. (laughs) Wow, we were really good at that. The melodrama is strong with this one. It is. It asked for it. It really did. It really did. It really did. So many things stick out, but but what is your initial reaction to all of this? So I just want to make sure I understand. Mm-hmm. So this is opening pages. Yep. 
Okay. And the idea here is that Anna's getting married to the love of her life, David. Mm -hmm. And when they are about to do their vows, Mm -hmm. a bunch of women show up who are like, actually, David gave me a part of his heart. Right. And we are supposed to assume that could have been sex, but also might not have been. It might have just been like emotional or romantic intimacy, right? Yeah, it's it's not pointed directly at physical intimacy. Okay. And he explicitly lays out. And so this is one of the reasons I started here is because it gets to a few of his main ideas. It lays down this idea that abstinence and kissing, dating goodbye is not about just abstaining from sex. Emotional intimacy is also something that can lead you to be ineffective duct tape and chewed up gum. This is the cornerstone of what is quote unquote, revolutionary or radical about Harris's position. Mm. He takes the idea of sexual abstinence, of purity, and removes it from being exclusively about sex. Right, right. The idea of, he, you know, he discusses the idea of emotionally cheating on your future spouse by being too invested in an opposite sex relationship, an opposite gender relationship. And then that is something I feel very weird talking about, like romantic relationships as only opposite sex, but very much like everything to come out of this culture, there is absolutely no space for queer or same sex relationships whatsoever. So I'm sort of using Harris's and evangelical culture's perspective when I say that sort of thing. I'm not being willfully ignorant. Yeah. So the idea here is that you can and presumably this is what, you know, David did. You can give yourself away, not only sexually, but in so many other areas of intimacy. And that when you do give yourself away, those people and those relationships, you know, to which you gave sort of haunt you and haunt your um, I'm sorry, I can't resist some good gothic language, (laughs) Haunt, you know, haunt your relationships, even up to the point of this level of commitment, like a marriage. Right. Yeah, you can be impacted by a girlfriend that you had an intimate conversation with eight years ago. I mean, he goes so far as to say at one point, like going out and spending time at like a dinner together alone is enough to warrant uh, a giving away of a piece of yourself, a losing of a piece of yourself. It's it's fascinating that he describes all of these issues with dating as compromises to your own wholeness. Mm. And this is another foundational part of Harris's brand of purity culture. I want to try to get into some of the nuance here because I don't want all purity culture to be lumped together because there are different strands. Rebecca St. James's Wade for me emphasized this idea on fulfillment if you abstain from intimacy mm-hmm. whereas harris promises more wholeness if you abstain from intimacy mm. the idea of purity is deeply connected to wholeness completeness um as opposed to just satisfaction mm. much like you can't avoid throwing in the gothic i can't avoid throwing in the economical or the marxist here he really does reduce people down to a commodity. 
You have a limited supply of yourself, of your heart, of your purity, of your sexuality. And any time you invest in a relationship, you are using up some of that commodity. Mm, so yeah. by the time you get to the altar, there are sort of two things that happen at once. You are both less whole and come with the baggage of other individuals. So like less of yourself and more of other people. Yeah, that's you become this composite person sorry go ahead didn't mean to jump your sentence there no no i just think it's really fascinating and it's a great way to it gives language to what i see as the problem because i actually i don't actually think it's a problem to identify that intimacy exceeds sex and that people you know when they form emotional connections with others when they you know engage in intimacy with others that are not in the bedroom that that can be actually just as powerful strong meaningful like i'm kind of on board with that and in fact like have beeps with purity culture for making sex the pinnacle of intimacy so Mm -hmm. i'm sort of with him there or at least i can like subscribe to the idea that like yeah it is meaningful who you have hours hour hour conversations with Mm -hmm. but where we diverge is this idea that is inherently sort of destructive to people yes and that there is a point that we have like some sort of like cap on how much intimacy (laughs) we can experience yeah before it becomes ruining or before it has potential to spoil future hypothetical intimacy. Yes. Absolutely. I, I, that is so well said. Absolutely. Harris does this thing quite often where he puts together some really insightful explorations of romantic and relational um, culture, but he then ends at the wrong space. <laughs> You know, like you said, it's like, yeah, intimacy isn't just sex. Physical intimacy isn't even just sex. Totally. And we do need to be aware of how we are intimate with people. But (laughs) where he lands is, so don't be intimate with people Mm -hmm. ever. Or guard yourself so intensely on such arbitrary grounds, you know, Mm -hmm. that you, I would argue, have potential to poison the possibility of so many wonderful Mm -hmm. relationships, you know, that might not end in official, like at the altar, my God. Like, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Harris uses the phrase, and this isn't novel to him, but he, again, his use of it is somewhat novel. He uses the phrase, guard your heart. Yeah, that was a big one. Yeah, that was a big one. That was like, that's a trigger phrase for a lot of people. So I'm sorry if that sent you back someplace. They had the little necklaces with the hearts yep. and the um, boxes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he uses it also as not just guard your own heart, but you are also responsible for the heart of the person you are interacting with mm. and the heart of your future spouse. So you're always guarding three people. You're always guarding at least three people. Yes. You are guarding yourself, the person you're interacting with, and the future spouse. There's this emphasis throughout the book about disappointing or coming up short or fracturing something with this mythical spouse 
who does not yet exist in your world, Mm. but who could potentially begin existing at any point. Right. Right. And that's always the thing. Right. So like if if David would have thought about hypothetical Anna, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't have all these girls standing at the altar with him. Right. Exactly. And that is where sort of the the message lands so strongly at the end of this little uh, dream sequence that he does. It is not the last dream sequence he uses. Spoilers. Um, (laughs) But the ending note is like, oh, if David had in his mind Anna and treated every relationship with those girls as something that would potentially uh, uh, strip his wholeness for Anna, he would realize that he's betraying Anna, a hypothetical future person, mm-hmm. for any of these now girls. Right, right. And the goal would be to end up at one's wedding day with only that one person, right? Yes. Who is the only person who you gave it all, gave, quote, you know, it all yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And again, that giving is on different levels. You know, you talked about that group of people at your church who you know went to the level of not kissing right right? yeah that was a harris thing he -hmm. explicitly and publicly said that he was not gonna kiss that his first kiss would be on his wedding day and that was something even that me and that first girlfriend of mine had said spoiler alert that didn't didn't happen i want to like add a little bit of a disclaimer that like i'm not trying to throw shade If you want to reserve physical intimacy for marriage, if that's your jam, go for it. You know, like if that's how you want to live your life and that that's how you want to uh, uh, manage your relationship. It's not my job to tell you otherwise, but that's the thing with purity culture. They believed it was their job to tell you. It is your job. Yeah. 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 What ends up happening is there's this cycle that gets created and and again i'm speaking from experience where like you mess up or you falter or you have an impure moment with a significant other or whatever and you then need to have that purity reinstated Mm. that wholeness reinstated now (laughs) any proponent of purity culture will argue that they believe that God can make you whole again. God can make you pure. You know, God can restore whatever bits or shift out of place. Yeah. But there is a very significant and daunting status change. It involves recommitment at, at True Love Waits conferences and so many other youth conferences. There were these like virginity cards where you were committing your virginity to Jesus. And that kind of thing. Um, And there were people who I knew who had had sex or kissed somebody they promised they wouldn't kiss and had to recommit their lives and their purity need to be reinstated. So something that happens throughout the book is Josh will tell us this story about a couple who had sex or, you know, were too emotionally intimate. And they needed to recommit their lives and they needed to like, you know, get past that to get to the pure stage or whatever. And and I point this out because one thing that Harris mentions in a lot of his uh, adult life is 
he didn't leave enough space for the messiness mm. of real life. I don't know about you. That phrase uh, is very, <laughs> yeah, I feel terrible about that phrase. I don't like it. Messy spiritual life, messiness of life is all just a code for like, you're allowed to make mistakes, but, but not too many. The common one in my uh, in my circle was, in fact, now my friends and I will still say it like ironically, like Jesus just wants to meet you in your mess. <laughs> so there there it's a noun rather than an adjective. But, you know, he's going to just meet us in our mess. What the hell does that mean? Yeah, it means I don't <laughs> have to. Question. No, 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 I know that. But like for, for our listeners and stuff like that, you're right. That phrase has one of those Christianese phrases that doesn't really have a meaning that is unique from the rest of Christian culture. It just means I still believe in really strong boundaries between what is sin and what is not. I'm just not going to be a bitch about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like that's what that means. It still means that you believe that the boundaries need to be inscribed exactly where you think they should be. Right. Right. There's no there's no um, willingness to reconsider the location of the boundaries or uh, uh, definitions. You're not going to interrogate why you hold the values the way you do, but you're going to try to not be so strict in policing other people or maybe yourself. Right. Supposedly, anyway. Supposedly. Right. It's again, it's a signal. It's a virtue signal kind of thing. but. And this is, again, this is one of the things we were talking about earlier with Josh is that he doesn't actually interrogate whether or not these values are good or not. Just, hey, we need to set them here. And we're going to talk about the documentary that Joshua Harris made uh, actually only like two years ago mm -hmm. uh, called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, where he does sort of what we're doing now. But um, what my kind of thesis of our analysis later, I'll spoil this ahead of time, is um, he doesn't ever really come to the point where he is willing to challenge the values of purity culture, mm -hmm. more or less just the execution of them. Yeah, for sure. Let's move ahead a little bit. Uh, Josh loves these lists. He makes about a half dozen lists throughout this book. To get a sense of how he defines dating, we're going to look at his list of seven habits of highly defective dating. The guy knows how to be pastor pithy, is what yeah. I'll call it. It's not really pithy, but, you know, you found a way to turn a phrase. Yeah. Well, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, right? Right. So, uh, yeah. And his follow-up, Boy Meets Girl. All right. So these are... Is this essentially like the kind of pitfalls of modern dating? Is that what he's saying? Yeah. Here? So the seven of habits are uh, essentially what he thinks defines the problems of dating. Now, these seven points are spread out across like 20 pages. Okay. So he like explains each so one. So he goes into them a little bit. Um, how would you rather discuss them? point discussion or do you want to go through them all and then talk about them as a unit let's just pull the band-aid and do it all at once sounds great would you please read the seven habits of highly defective dating 
All right. Seven habits of highly defective dating. Great biblical number there, by the way. Absolutely. Um, All right. And also just for our audience to remember, this is 1990s dating culture. No Tinder. Dating leads to intimacy, but not necessarily to commitment. Dating tends to skip the friendship stage of a relationship. Dating often mistakes a physical relationship for love. Dating often isolates a couple from other vital relationships. Dating in many cases distracts young adults from their primary responsibility of preparing for the future. Dating can cause discontentment from God's gift of singleness. Dating creates an artificial environment for evaluating another person's character. So what do you think of that? Does that track? I mean, obviously, you didn't date in the 90s. Only the only God, only dated God. Um, The uh, I think the faces that you had to, you know, you were victim to having to see were somewhat the me identifying what feel to me like contradictions. So like dating tends to skip the friendship stage of a relationship. Yeah, dude, that's what like basically courtship is, right? Yeah. And then dating often isolates a couple from other vital relationships. But yet his whole sort of thing is that we need to be like dedicating more time to the one, the person, rather than like all the six other girls who showed up at the altar. I mean, maybe I'm stretching that a little bit, but and also, I mean, I have to be honest that I actually do think singleness is a gift. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to like say that right, right up front. But I do not ever buy when people like Joshua Harris and Rebecca St. James in these books are like, but the real gift that we could all like maybe have to accept is that it's actually being single. That's the truest blessing. It's like I call such bullshit. Because it's this post hoc explanation for like why you don't have a mate yet. Right. Until you do. Until you do. It's always temporary. Singleness is a temporary gift until you are a spinster who can't be loved. Right. Then it's not cute anymore or it's not, you know, or you have to like literally go in my case in the church. It was like the way that singleness could be sort of like justified, excused or celebrated was if you like literally went and became a missionary in Guatemala. He literally uses the phrase. (laughs) If you don't follow this, then you might be subjected to spending Friday night alone with your cats watching a movie. I don't like to think was well. I'm married, but my cats have great observations when I watch TV. Oh my god! So it's like, yeah. So I think that really that does a great job at getting at what I am identifying as a little. I said bullshit, but like a little bit of insincerity in that. Like you spend 400 pages, Rebecca, Joshua Harris, all these people. They spend pages and pages and pages talking about how marriage is like the pinnacle of the Christian experience, mm-hmm. right? Like. There's no there's basically nothing else greater than God's gift of marriage. And yet so then they kind of have to like throw in this like, you know, sort of like patting you on the shoulder. You know, it's it's okay though, because it could be God's plan. That aside, what I really identified here was what just felt like it's kind of confusing because I feel like there's a lot of contradictions. Yes. And that is um really my biggest critique of this list is that all of these things are essentially pitfalls of his model, his courtship model. I would invert a couple of them. Like, uh, number one, dating leads to intimacy, but not necessarily commitment. Flip that. 
courtship leads to commitment, but not necessarily intimacy. Right. Right. Yeah. Like that's a problem too. Also, notably, this is where he puts his first uh, reference to scripture. This is like oh, nine okay. or 10 pages in. It's the first time he drops scripture. The scripture that he offers here is First Thessalonians 4, 6. Understand, brothers, that no man should go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that is the because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. In other words, if you're intimate with somebody, you're defrauding them and their future spouse. That's not any better than the way Rebecca used scripture. Like that has nothing to do no. with sex. That has nothing to do with intimacy. That's just like you saying, don't scam people the way I'm defining it. And that I'm applying that definition to this section of scripture. Dating tends to skip the friendship stage. Do you know how many times I had a girl that I had a crush on and I was like, hey, you know, let's walk down to the donut shop and just like get some coffee and have a conversation about class. And they would say, oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't you know, I, I'm saving myself. It's like mm -hmm. I just said. I meant literal donuts like mm -hmm. I couldn't have friendship uh, dating often mistakes physical relationship for love. I mean, like he tells this story about he always picks very white names for his people, Dave and Heidi. He tells a story about Dave and Heidi who. Wait, another Dave? Another Dave. Yep. Oh, mm -hmm. not interesting. He is this, maybe this is one of the girls at the altar. <laughs> It's Heidi. <laughs> what really needs to happen is Anna and Heidi just need to find each other and Absolutely. not have to deal with Dave. Absolutely. I love that. I love that plot twist for them. <laughs> um, but Dave and Heidi have this like relationship and they spend time together and then they start like making out. And he even explicitly says that they don't have sex, but they do, quote, practically everything else, which is like, OK, like. <laughs> boring like <laughs> fine boring. i guess like good for you dave and heidi i don't know like i mean that means you did like over the shirt stuff once like yeah that that uh phrase not to derail your thing but that was a very vague phrase in my mm -hmm. church growing up was like well, yeah. we didn't have sex but we did a lot of other things and your imagination's just like running freaking wild right. because how in creative are you is my response to that. Like, really? This could be like having a kiss in your parents' living room or something that could end up in an STI. I mean, like, it, right. the, the spectrum is like... Yes. <laughs> One of my yeah. favorite um, examples of, like, how this kind of phrasing slipped into pop culture is there's an episode of Boy Meets World where they're doing, like, a spoof on, like, Scream and horror movies. And so one of the characters says... This is a horror movie. We have to like know horror movies. And they're like, okay, what can we learn? Virgins. Virgins are always safe. And so like two of the characters, Corey and Topanga look at each other and go, Corey goes, oh, thanks for keeping me safe, keeping me alive on. And Eric and, and one of their other friends go, oh, I'm dead. And Sean goes, well, I'm about as alive as you, I'm about as sick as you can get before dying without dying. It's great. But this language is everywhere. Like, right. This language permeates all of culture. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Dave and Heidi did it. Got as sick as they could without actually dying. Right. OK. Didn't mean anything. And okay. Josh says every time they, quote, 
tried to evaluate the merits of their relationship. They were blinded by their physical relationship. And he quotes Heidi as saying, I mean, it's obvious we love each other. Like, he's great. I'm great. We have fun together. It's obvious we love each other. And then he closes the quotes from Heidi and says, but did they? (laughs) Oh, my God. You're telling me they didn't. But Heidi's pretty convinced. Like, maybe Dave's just a great lay. Did you ever think about that? That is so ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. There's something beautiful about being intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember quite a few uh, friends of mine using that word as a sort of caveat to all of this. Like, well, I don't really believe in courtship proper, but I believe in dating with intention. Right, being intentional. Or being yeah, intentional. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember that too. Yeah, like that was sort of the halfway point. There are people even outside the church who say that, right? It's like, I am sort of like, I've had lots of like secular friends, you know, people who are not Christians, you know, who are like, I am dating with the hope of like finding a long-term partner. I'm not just dating, you know, to to mess around. Like there are some people who have that sort of, you know, position and intent going into the dating world. Mm -hmm. So this isn't like a, you know, inherently sort of Believe it or not, Christians, you're not the only one yeah. who wants to find a long term partner. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So. Well, and, and again, like, that's beautiful if that's what you want. Like, go for it. Also, like, if you want a marriage, then I would hope you are being intentional about achieving your goals. Like, if you want something specific, I would hope that you were intentional about achieving that specific thing. Right, right, right. Of course. Yeah, the the flippancy with which dating is described, secular dating culture. Uh, there wasn't a such thing as secular dating culture for Joshua Harris. It was dating is a secular thing that Christians shouldn't do. Right. Yeah. Good distinction. Yeah. For him, dating is described as this flippant thing. It's just this. And, and this is a, another trend throughout his book is um, describing dating with no nuance between looking to get to know people, like casually going out with people to learn what you want in a partner and hedonism. Like those things are the same. Mm. And that kind of goes back to you, your original claim, which was that in some ways he advocates for a model that he never actually really gets around to defining. Like what even is dating? When he Mm -hmm. kisses dating goodbye, what is that? What is he kissing goodbye? What is the actual ritual or system or institution that he's rejecting? And also, you know, Josh, I just got to tell you, like, if you're going to say goodbye to it, you probably shouldn't kiss it. That's right. You should That's kind of part of your point. Listen, stick yeah. to your messages. But no, like, yeah, you're right. What is this thing that he's getting rid of? To answer that question, after his seven uh, habits of highly defective dating, he provides five new attitudes. Okay, he really likes to the reform list. that. Yes, he loves this thing. He didn't keep it consistent. Why not seven? But, you know. Yeah. So, Jenny, I'm going to read these to you and I want you to tell me, do you think these attitudes fix what he thinks is wrong with dating? Or do you think that they advocate for something practical? Do they fix the problems he addresses and are they practical at all? Okay. 
Okay, so we're not to assume that one replaces the one from the other list. No, they do not correlate directly. Okay, got it. One, every relationship is an opportunity to model Christ's love. Two, my unmarried years are a gift from God. Three, intimacy is the reward of commitment. I don't need to pursue a romantic relationship before I'm ready for marriage. Four, I cannot own someone outside of marriage. Five, I will avoid situations that could compromise the purity of my body or mind. Okay, well, let's just start with number four. (laughs) I knew you'd want to start there. I cannot own someone outside of marriage. I'm sorry, sir. What are you talking about? (laughs) So what does he expand on that? He does a little bit. Essentially, and and so this is uh, the quote that I have directly under that. Okay. From Passion and Purity uh, is how he describes that. So you just read uh, the quote from Elizabeth Elliot for me. Uh, So it starts with unless and goes to the question mark. Okay. So he says, I cannot own someone outside of marriage. And then this is underneath. This is in that subheading. In the section. Okay. And he's quoting someone else. Okay. In Passion and Purity, Elizabeth Elliot states, quote, unless a man is prepared to ask a woman to be his wife, what right has he to claim her exclusive attention? Unless she has been asked to marry him, why would a sensible woman promise any man her exclusive attention? How many people end dating relationships only to find their ties to other friends severed? He describes owning someone as having rights to their exclusive attention. And time. And time, yeah. So I cannot own someone outside of marriage. Right. First of all, the amount of like deafness that needs to be happening inside your brain to not notice that your comma after that goes with, but I can while I'm in marriage. Like, right. Yeah. Like, man, you're really not doing anything for the marriage's ownership of a person thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my. Also, Elliot's uh, comment there, Elizabeth Elliot's comment, unless she has been asked to marry him, why would a sensible woman promise any man her exclusive attention? I mean, yeah, I why? But also, why would you like I I'm a I'm married and codependent as fuck. Right. But. Even I think this idea of exclusive attention is problematic. Yeah. Even in marriage. Nobody owns anybody. That's the point. Also, what is exclusive attention? Right. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. So that obviously, I mean, any, you know, my trigger word's always going to be own. Yes. So, you know, okay. So we, we, we got that one out of the way. Um, every relationship is an opportunity to model Christ's love. That's one of those like, you get on board with that don't really know what it means but if it's like lay down your life for your friend sure something tells me that's not what he's talking about here. no actually believe it or not it is and that's oh, one of the right. things that i found so perplexing about that new attitude he does this thing uh, and he spends an entire chapter called defining love in god's dictionary okay which the is Bible? basically just yeah it's basically just his excuse right. to quote the first corinthians 13 passage he lays out the idea of Christ's love being this sacrificial, like laying down your life for a friend and that kind of thing. It's like, I guess, yeah, like being 
serving to other like sure but that's not a practical thing that's not actually a guide it doesn't even have a specific meaning it's just a vague way to say be christianly at others i also don't understand how why this is in contrast to other attitudes so what is the opposite attitude of this so every relationship is an opportunity to model christ's love as opposed to what that's the hedonism mindset right because again Uh he boils it down to if you're dating someone and you have sex with them or you're casually dating, uh, then you're just doing it for your own pleasure. Your relationship okay. needs to be selfless and serving and it doesn't matter what you get out of it. But also, I think that's problematic, too, because if you're not getting something out of a relationship, if the relationship isn't reciprocal, that's a problematic relationship. Yeah, viewing every relationship as an opportunity to model Christ's love feels like a great way to set up a one-sided relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole premise of Christianity, right? Christ loves you no matter what. So, right. yeah. Um, and then number two, I, I, I think the language switch here is interesting. And I notice Rebecca does this sometimes too. My unmarried years are a gift from God. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like singleness is a gift from God, right? Mm-hmm. Like embedded in that is like a don't worry, it's going to happen. Yeah. These are the unmarried years, but assuming that the rapture doesn't come, they're going to be married years. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But that's just the same jargon as before, yeah. just slightly different. Yeah. There's no space for like, I just want to be by myself. Like, and that's yeah. fine and healthy. Like, you have yeah. to get married at some point because marriage, again, is the pinnacle and the goal. It's another feature of Josh's purity culture. Right. And it's like encouraging people who are single. It reminds me of like when I help my college students like write a college application like essay. And we're like, when I am a student at blah, blah, blah. And they're not yet students, but it like makes you feel good to say it. Number three, I think, is the most confusing one to me. And it's one that I've always really struggled with in terms of purity culture. Mm -hmm. Intimacy is the reward of commitment. Mm-hmm. It is very hard for me to frame how a commitment comes about without intimacy first. Yes. Why would I be committed to you if we haven't shared intimate experiences that make me know I care for you? Yeah, precisely. Your best friends, your closest friends, you are loyal to them and you care for them because of the relationship you've cultivated over years. I also, and I know you're this kind of person too, I care about people I don't have intimacy with because I'm a decent human being, right? right. Like all decent people, I care about people. I don't right. need intimacy to care about them, but I'm not committed right. to anyone that I don't have a level of intimacy with. These right. things are collinear. Mm-hmm. They, they progress at the same time, in my mind, at least. They're not like one comes after or before the other. And I think that the problem with Josh's brand of PC is that commitment comes before intimacy. I'm going to marry you before I know a damn thing about you. Right. Right. Yeah. And I like the word collinear because it is true that, you know, intimacy sort of forms as commitment forms, you know, the Mm -hmm. two are are entangled. Right. But purity culture always set it up as sort of like they're like these steps. Right. And that intentional commitment is likely going to come before you have the opportunity to form intimacy. And that was always very confusing to me as someone who like take is more private and takes longer to like even just form friendships, you know, Mm -hmm. like the idea that I could know I'm going to be committed to you was actually pretty terrifying to me because it's like, 
I simply don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. This, this brings an interesting layer to this that we uh, kind of discussed in passing, but I want you to skip down to the passage that starts with the header, just plain confusing. It's on page six of our document. Okay. Just plain confusing. Okay. So what, this is him talking? This is, yeah, this is Josh Harris talking. And this is a little bit later when he's talking about um, like intimacy and skipping the friendship stage and stuff like that. Okay. Being, quote, just friends, end quote, is just plain confusing. In all honesty, I haven't completely figured it out. Romance runs in my veins, and it's not always easy to restrain. (laughs) Even when I want to maintain a platonic relationship with a girl, I struggle with keeping myself from stepping into something more. Where is the line between friendship and more than friendship anyway? Trying to answer that question reminds reminds me of a Tootsie Pop commercial I watched as a kid. Maybe you've seen it. A little boy has a Tootsie Pop and a very valid question. How many licks does it? (laughs) There's that tone death. (laughs) Oh, God. These uh, the lack of editors here. Okay, how many licks does it take to get to the middle of a Tootsie Roll filled lollipop? He has a couple of animals, his question, but nobody knows the answer. They direct him to the owl. The owl would know. Owls are smart. Yeah. Can I just finish? I kind of want to know what happens. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the boy poses his question to the owl who sits in his tree like some mountaintop guru. How many licks does it take to get to the chewy center of a Tootsie Pop? The owl thoughtfully takes the sucker and removes the wrapping. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't put the rest of it. I cut it off. I'm sorry. That owl. uh, Hang on. Let's see. He licks one. He counts. He licks again. Two. He says he licks a third time. Three. And suddenly crunch. Throwing patience to the wind. The owl bites into the middle of the Tootsie Pop. Handing the bare Tootsie Pop stick to the boy, the owl announces his answer to the mystifying question. Three. The owl made me so mad when I was a kid. I felt sorry for the boy. Not only did he lose his Tootsie Pop, but he still didn't know the true answer to his question. When I consider friendship with girls, I feel like that boy. I don't want to reach the chewy center of romance. I just want to be friends. But I don't always know how much attention a friendship between a guy and a girl can handle before crunch. We've crossed the line from friendship into more than friendship. Uh, And then he immediately says, I don't say this because I'm afraid of romance. I like romance. I promise. (laughs) So I noticed two things with that. Uh, The reason I wanted you to read that for two reasons. One, the just sheer tone deaf of like comparing a relationship to a woman with the licks and a Tootsie Pop is, whew. but it does two things. One, the point of the Tootsie Pop is eating the Tootsie. Like that's the best part of a Tootsie Pop. And I don't like sugar, but it is. Trust me. I think an argument could be made that it's actually the anticipation. But this sounds like an argument that we can have off camera. Off I don't know. I feel <laughs> like people are going to want to know where we end up standing. But at any rate, like, it's part of the process. That's not like they're not two different things. And right. he conflates friendship and romance as one inevitably entails the other. The other thing is, and correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't this smack of when Harry met Sally? Oh, my God. OK, I'm so glad that you said that, because every time you make a comment like, you know, I couldn't be friends with girls or can we be friends with the opposite sex? I'm just picturing Meg Ryan in the diner and I'm yeah. like, it's not Harris meant. It's not what any of these people meant. This is not. 
But maybe there is, I mean, so what year was when Harry met Sally? 89, 88, 89, maybe? I could be totally wrong. Up. I'm a big fan of that movie. So I love that movie so it's much. So good. 89. So, oh, man. I'm good, aren't I? Okay. Yeah. Um, 89. So it makes me wonder if on some level, on some other more rational way, <laughs> you know, the the world at large is having this discussion about gender roles, sex, dating, whatever. I was kind of thinking about it in reverse. Right? Oh, like okay. Harris is talking about trying to define relationship uh, different from, quote, the world. Right. But really what he ends up doing most of the time is taking these cliches from the real world and flipping the reasoning behind them on their head. Mm. Right. Like the whole argument in When Harry Met Sally in that scene is men and women can't be friends because there's sexual tension. Right. And so what Harris is saying is, well, of course, we can't be friends because there's sexual tension, because there's always that tension of romance. That's why friendship is a problem, because it will inevitably lead to problems of romance and sex. And it's this weird, like flipping of something on its head that I think it's just he's not doing anything new. He's just coming up with new ways of explaining things that already exist. I'm going to read this brief section. Um, this is a page up from where we were. You meet someone of the opposite sex. He or she really catches your eye. Uh-oh. Then you get to know this person and you find out he or she has a great personality as well. Double O. To top it all off, this person sends you that I'd like to get to know you better vibe. Major uh-oh. If you decided to put romance on hold until you're ready for marriage, what do you do in a situation like this? If you're not going to play the game, dating game, what's the plan? The simple answer is to just be friends. Easy, right? Not quite. What do you feel about this? Well, the first few things you read, I was like, why is this a bad situation? <laughs> you know, forgetting that like, oh, right, we have our the courtship model where, you know, these things aren't things to celebrate. They're complications, right? right? Um, yeah. Um, what was the very last line? The answer is simple to just be friends. Easy, right? Not quite. He even goes on to say, I'll, I'll expand this a little bit because this is the direction I want us to close our conversation of this. And maybe we wouldn't struggle with this scenario if God created us without hearts, devoid of emotions and immune to attraction. But he didn't. Most of us have to deal with all three. <laughs> uh, as we stumble through the confusing process of finding balance between two extreme options, jumping headlong into romance with everyone who catches our eye or running in fear from all members of the opposite sex, finding that balance is anything but easy. The middle ground can often feel more like a tightrope stretched over a gaping chasm. Again, we're back to like that very uncomfortable missing sexual metaphors here. As always, you know, he's he, Rebecca, all of these people, you know, they're setting up this scenario where they're like, this is a major problem. And then giving no real definable answers mm -hmm. to what the solution is mm -hmm. to that problem. OK, so if we, you know, sign on to your whole thing, then, yeah, it is complicated being friends. So then what the hell do you do? Like, what does he tell us to do? Mm hmm. Uh, great question. Uh, <laughs> he tells 
tells this story. So the last chapter of the book is about telling your love story. Okay. And it's a very weird Christian version of how I met your mother. He's sitting there listening to his parents tell this unbelievably uncomfortable story about how they met. The story goes, uh, his dad was on the worship team and walked up to his mother because he thought she was attractive and said, do you mind if I call you sometime? And she, I forgot what she said in response. And then he goes, so then can I have your number? Because it was not at all clear what she meant. And then she went, I'm in the church directory. And she walked away. And I thought that's hilarious because that's how you shut somebody down. I'm in the church directory. Yeah. (laughs) And then he says, mom and dad prayed about each other hard in the privacy of their two bedrooms. Oh. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And apparently mom told God, if you want me to be with this guy, tell him not to call me. Wow. And dad prayed, God, tell me if I should call her. And apparently God said no, which Mm -hmm. meant they were destined to be together. So these are his parents. These are Josh's parents. Yeah. Well, God, you know, it's hard to beat a fairy tale like that. Right. I mean, he goes on to tell a story about a Jessica. This is the third Jessica in his different, like, you know, he keeps naming people. This is the third of the Jessicas. Okay. He does that thing that Rebecca St. James does too. Like, Anna wrote a letter to me and Jessica I had a conversation with. And And you sort of read it like, could be true. Could be. Sure. Maybe not. I I guarantee you, you know, this many people with very white names. Yeah. Yeah. That's believable. That part is believable. So he tells the story about Jessica. When she arrived at college, a very conservative Christian school chosen in part because of its strict guidelines, Jessica found to her dismay that all the outward rules she had counted on did nothing to control the feelings that suddenly began to well up inside of her. She had never interacted with so many handsome, godly guys on a daily basis. Jessica had never had a problem turning down a date with Tony, who wore a Metallica t-shirt and sported stringy bleached hair. Oh, poor Tony. Poor Tony. But when tall, clean-cut Eric gazed at her with his penetrating brown eyes as he discussed that morning's chapel sermon, Jessica felt her resolve melting. No, 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 no. This isn't in the book. I swear to you, it's in our document. You can see the screenshots from the book. This is in the book. Like when she saw Tony, mm-mm-mm. but when she saw Eric, sploosh. Like <laughs> penetrating gaze. <laughs> penetrating gaze. Oh my God. I'm trying. I'm like holding back so much right now, but oh my God. I mean, it's terrible. Oh but aside from the incredibly sexual way he described those two men. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly eric which i think josh you're you're missing something buddy right (laughs) uh aside from that he tells how the guidelines and the rules set up by the school the institution didn't help her govern her feeling and that ultimately rules don't matter you need to police yourself you need to put yourself in situations where these 
inevitable feelings are not going to lead you to temptation. Personal responsibility in the realm of protecting one's. Yes. Purity. Okay. Honestly, one thing that really stuck out to me and, and sort of something that was defining of my, uh, my experience as an adolescent was this idea of the deceitful heart. Right. Uh, he quotes uh, one chapter, you know, one scripture reference he quotes is Jeremiah 17, nine, which is like the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all else. Yeah. Which I asked my father if I could tell this story when we were kids. He used to say that to us all the time. <laughs> he used to say, I don't care what your heart says. Pray about it. The heart is des- desperately wicked and is going to lead you to temptation. And like. I believe that for such a long time and it actually this isn't all my dad's fault, but he contributed to it. I had such a hard time ever trusting myself to make a decision. Mm. Nothing I wanted could be trusted. If I wanted something, chances are I was trying to be deceived because there's this part of me, this emotional part of me that needs to be uh dissevered or discerned between what is right and what is wrong there isn't a line between trusting your whole self as a as a whole complete being and just utter hedonism right i want to spend time with this person because they're a fun attractive person and not even in like a sexual or romantic way just like oh you're a hell of a lot of fun to hang out with that must be a warning sign that i can't be near you (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember, I remember that really vividly as well. And that like no decision could ever just be sort of like neutral. Mm-hmm. It it always was, you know, God ordained and good or, you know, right. To use your word, heathenism. Uh, you know, my dad and I have had a lot of conversations because, um, you know, we've sort of gone down some of this deconstruction journey together. And he sort of revised his views on this, you know, to this point where like, yeah, I definitely lean too hard on that. Like, obviously, our heart is something God gave us. Our emotions is something that like we were programmed with or or created with is the way he would say that. And uh, therefore, it's like we have to take it into consideration on some level, but it's something that we need to approach with discernment. Mm. I've taken it a step further and it's like if something doesn't feel right there's a problem with it. Like my intuition is an important part of my learning to feel things through that little anecdote that he gives both about Jessica and the one at the beginning where you meet someone and they catch your eye. Like that's ultimately this narrative that anytime you feel good, your warning light should go off. Yeah. You should never feel safe in feeling good. Mm hmm. And people wonder why I was an anxious child. <laughs> do they? Do they wonder? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, right. I guess. I guess one. I guess that wasn't so uh, enigmatic to other folks. I feel like that's a sort of um, that's a thing that like, uh, you know, like ex-Christian evangelical kids say to each other, like, and people wonder why I have anxiety. And it's like we're all standing around like, no, no, no one. No one's wondering. No, that was just you, honey. Actually, no, no one's wondering. (laughs) He closes the book with this idea of writing a love story that you will be proud to tell. 
the last sentence is, I encourage you and continue to remind myself to write a love story with your life that you'll feel proud to tell your kids. And again, there's that sort of like destined to get married and have children and model for them this like particular kind of love story. Yeah, yeah. That's where the book leaves off. Uh, Any sort of practical advice ends at like, you know, he has four steps to getting back on track, which is just like setting boundaries for yourself and teaming up with your parents and making a clean slate to start with and checking on your influences. And like, it's just it's fine. It's like if you think about it as like decide for yourself what you're comfortable with physically. Don't think of yourself as dirty and damned. Live in a community that's supportive Mm -hmm. and check on what's influencing your desires and wants. Like that's actually good advice, but it's not unique to Christian advice. It's not actually a list of practical steps. Right, right. Of course. It's just sort of like basic. These are good practices. Don't don't be a you know, don't be a dick. Yeah. Don't try to own people. Don't try to force people. Like, you know, it doesn't really even need a whole book. No. Yeah. I feel like most of these Christian self-help books can sort of be boiled down to just don't be a dick. Yeah. So he writes this book. He writes this book. He becomes a mega church pastor because everybody loves him so freaking much. Yes. He meets his wife, blah, blah, blah. And then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike, like we said before, unlike Rebecca St. James, he gets married really quickly. He goes yeah. on to uh, uh, become a pastor. I forget if it's Bob Jones University or um, Patrick Henry that he goes to, but it's one of those like ultra conservative, like friendly to homeschool kid uh, schools. Right. And then he actually steps down from being a megachurch pastor to go get a master's degree in ministry. Okay. While there, he goes from being like a leader of a megachurch to having to be a student of what he describes as a very humbling experience. And I don't know about you, Teddy, for me, going from teaching after my master's degree to then having to go back to being a student for the Ph.D., was a humbling experience like yeah you sort of remember oh right i don't have all the answers no matter what those little you know teenagers think of me yeah and the fact that that happened to him in a master's in ministry yes is telling you know it is while he's there people go wait are you are you the josh harris Where's your hat? <laughs> Where's your hat? He's actually shaved bald now. I know. I which saw is that. Really interesting. I saw that. Yeah. It's not a bad look for him, I'll tell you. It is. It is, yeah. But while he's there, people keep going, Oh, so you're the Josh Harris. And he like, Oh yeah, I am. And they're like, Listen, buddy, I got a lot of fucking problems with you. Why <laughs> you wrecked my life? <laughs> well, very really, that is what happens to him. A lot of people start saying, hey, listen, your book messed up my life. Like right. I, I got divorced because my my wife and I, you know, or my, my husband and I didn't have a good foundation because of what you said. People forced your book on me. And he ends up on this um, 
I, I think it's very genuine search for, well, how badly did this mess people up? <laughs> so he actually makes a friendship with a woman. <gasps> it's OK because he's married. He's not eligible anymore. So, you know, but he, he has a friendship with a woman who was negatively affected by his book. And they make a documentary together called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. So, Teddy, you watched this, correct? Yes. Yes, I did watch it. Yep. Yep. And I will say that a thing that struck me as interesting, too, was that those critiques started in college or when he was in his master's program. And then, as always, social media came. Remember, like, he has this whole little bit on social media and how, like, people just started, like, randomly tweeting him yeah like hey this is what your book did to me yep. and i love how i don't want to you know no, your no. Thunder, but in, i love how in the documentary he goes the first thing i responded was just i'm sorry <laughs> like, <you laughs> yeah. yeah um which you read that as like totally genuine which i i i think is fair i will say that there was a small part of me that was like how did you not know this mm-hmm. like you know, I'm a, as always, I'm a, I was a little suspicious because I it felt like he really wanted to position himself as like, you know, I wrote this book. And then like in these 15 years, you know, it impacted people in all these ways. And I was just sort of blown away. I guess I, I would love to know more of what happened in that like mm-hmm. frame between the book and the like all of a sudden now I'm like befriending my enemies on Twitter. Like mm-hmm. was this true like jaw dropping information you know yeah yeah absolutely and and you know you and i talked about this you know while we were both watching through the documentary again and like i'm not super interested in the was he actually sincere conversation right because it's it just broadly uninteresting i it think is. yeah yeah who but cares about that? I, I think that if i'm gonna make a comment about that the, the what I would say is I think that there's something in it that started as sincere and genuine, but and we'll get to this at the end. I think it was corrupted by some of the same things that corrupted his perspectives in the book. That's that's so true. And I think we can talk about that in terms of like him sort of marketing his ideas yet again. Right. Um, I think for me, just to clarify, you know, when I when I raise skepticism about like, you know, what happened in that in between moment, it's less about josh as like an individual what's going on in his heart because like you said sincerity intentions those are kind of boring questions and they're they're unanswerable mm-hmm. what's interesting to me more so is how much was he engaged in the discourse of critique of purity culture how much was he open to it and what sort of sparked him actually being receptive to it because this is mm-hmm. like a decade now you know in the making Um, And this documentary is pretty new. So I guess just in terms of his own, you know, deconstruction and and his own sort of significance to the movement as a whole. I'm just curious about, like, what was his role and position in that discourse? And was this really the first time that he was like opening himself up to that? From uh, some cursory looking around, like he seems pretty much like he coasted from his position of influence as a 20 year old, leveraging that into a pastoral position where he didn't need to challenge himself. He actually did a TEDx talk, which is really interesting called um, something like the strength uh, in being wrong or something like that. Oh, okay. That's cool. 
Yeah. And, and the whole piece, it, it reads a little bit like an advertisement for the documentary. <laughs> He's like, man, I just realized that like I was wrong. And so I went on this soul searching journey where I asked other people, tell me how wrong I am. And I had to sit there and listen to them. Tell me how wrong I was. You can watch it all on the documentary. It's very pastoral, very sermonic. The TED talk, uh, his three points on how to be wrong because he loves his lists is evolution involves death. Just very intense, but just like growing requires some sort of death. You can't rust the process of dealing wrong. And he keeps using that phrase, deal with messiness again. Three, admitting you're wrong will lead to resistance. So here he's talking about even when you admit you're wrong, the people that liked what you said before will push back and say, oh, but you weren't wrong to begin with, so you should just not apologize. And then on the other side, people will say, are you really sincere in being willing to be wrong? And just to clarify, he is wrong about what? Really great question. Uh, <laughs> he's not very clear about that in the TED Talk, uh, okay. which is really interesting. Or in the documentary. Yeah, he's not very clear. He, he what isn't. Yeah. He kind of ends the TED Talk with people are wrong about being wrong. Because everyone who thinks that they're always right is not growing because there's no space for them to be wrong and adjust. Which is interesting. Sure, that's yeah. about the end of the conclusion. And in the documentary, it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. I don't know. I walked away from the documentary feeling like, all right, but what did you change other than saying I was right, but I said it wrong? Right. That's that's a good way of putting it. I did not walk away from the documentary feeling like I had a clear sense of any revision mm -hmm. of the beliefs. I got a clear sense that he was bummed that the rightfully so. And I appreciate that he was bummed and regretful and contrite that the beliefs he put forth harm people in some way. Right. And that he was willing to sort of reckon with that. We don't even have to discuss intentions, but he was willing to reckon with that. Right. Sure. I didn't get a sense, though, that he was saying, here's a better model or here's where we go from here mm -hmm. or here's what the future holds for purity culture or here what would have been here's what would have been healthier. You know, mm -hmm. there was nothing in a way you were talking before about how I kissed dating goodbye was meant to like fill the lack of like, well, here's what you shouldn't do. Right. Mm -hmm. Now there's a like lack again because I don't actually know where he stands and maybe it doesn't matter. But I think. For those of us who grew up in purity culture, it's like it doesn't matter what Joshua Harris thinks, but it does matter what Joshua Harris thinks, mm -hmm. you know, because yeah. it's like, you know, he's just a person. I get it. He's allowed to grow and change and be involved in the same sort of, you know, ridiculously confusing questions that all of us have. But because of the role he played in our lives, it, mm -hmm. it feels like I want to know, like, I want to know, you know, like, what are you saying? Like. What are you what are you actually pulling back? What are you actually, you know, saying, revising? What are you know? Yeah, it's that caring and not caring. You yeah. know, I don't, I'm rambling. But. No, 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 no. I, I love what you're saying. There's this sort of like desire from those of us who have deconstructed to almost get like ideological recompense. Yeah, yeah. I hate to admit it, but it's true. I don't know. You you did something that made it so that my adolescence wasn't just 
an experience of adolescence. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Whenever I see things from like my conservative friends about Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the guys that wrote Left Behind, still pumping out Left Behind style stuff. I think you guys don't realize how much anxiety you gave me, right? Yeah. There's a great meme. It's just like my parents when I was 10. What are you so anxious about? And then I saw that. that. Yeah. And it's just like the end times, purity culture, uh, hell. Possession. Yeah. yeah. Possession. It's like there's so much stuff that like influenced us. I don't even want to say wrecked. I don't want to use hyperbolic language, but really influenced who I became. You know, the phrase that you used early on in this the sequence of episodes rumbling in the background mm-hmm. of our psyches that I want, I want you to admit that there's something wrong. I want you to recognize what it is that happened. And at the end of the documentary, there's this like, you know, there's this scene where Josh Harris walks up into the mountains and he's sitting by a little stream and, and there's a valley behind I mean, it almost looks like a Gregory Allen Isakov cover, right? Like, it's so <laughs> idyllic. Yeah, it's so idyllic. And he's going, man, I really have to wrestle with the complex reality that helped and hurt people. And I realized I was so afraid of getting something wrong that, you know, I and it just felt really flat, not in the sense that like I was owed more, mm-hmm. but in the sense that like, OK, that was nothing. That that wasn't. That wasn't you experiencing a breakthrough in a genuine way. And I think that's why you sort of went to like, it didn't feel genuine. Like, Mm -hmm. I think there was the genuine intention, but the performance of it came off as a performance. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, The cynical part of me also says that I get frustrated when I see Christians from that culture kind of get stuck in the like regret and like sadness mode. So Mm -hmm. like by that, I mean, I have a lot of friends from that era. I have a lot of think Christian thinkers from that era who are very good at admitting we did this wrong or, Oh God, that was so bad. I can't believe we did that. Purity culture was so problematic or, you know, even with LGBTQ rights, right? Like, Oh, Mm -hmm. we really like treated this poorly in the church. And then we get stuck there. And it's like the same old rhetoric, like produced over and over and over again. And it's like remorseful and kind hearted. And it positions you as better than the Christians who aren't acknowledging at all. But there's really no identifiable growth there. And mm-hmm. my bullshit detector is just like going off. And yes, maybe unfairly so. Like, I actually have a memory of me and you in our early days of our friendship. We were talking, it was either about like Rob Bell or Donald Miller. And I was still a little bit ahead of you at that point. Mm -hmm. And you were like talking about how great they are. And I was, you know, being rude probably. And basically being like, they're full, you know, it's just bullshit. But I think where what what that comes from is actually a place of like, I want to hear more from you than what I am hearing. And it feels like it's something that can drag on year after year after year. And it's unfair to me, you know, from me to some degree, because everybody needs to be at that stage at some point. I've just had so much experience with people from that part of my life dwelling there for so long that it becomes like rather than a true moment of, you know, kind of justifiable you know, hesitation, it goes from that to like complacency and like a crutch for not taking Mm -hmm. a stand in a new way. Mm -hmm. 
wow uh, i i <laughs> no i, I mean that that's I, you know that's a yeah. lot and it's so powerful because it's it's kind of the place that i've been in recently um and by recently i mean within the past year and a half or so mm-hmm. is that i find a lot of the progressive christian expressions almost as lackluster as the hyper conservative or alt-right expressions there's a uh the last interview that harris does in the documentary uh somebody says to him like she can point to all the things that have been that shouldn't have been said or should have been said differently or uh, you know that kind of thing but at the end of the day jesus is bigger and better than all of that and it was just like okay that's like like he says so many times throughout the original book, like we shouldn't get take the world's better for God's bet instead of God's best, that kind of thing. Like whatever there is, it's fine. You know, maybe it's fine, but God is better. Or he uses the analogy like dating culture is fast food. It's not sinful, but God has something better for us. <laughs> it's like, dude, have you ever had a French fry? Have you gone to Taco Bell? <laughs> right. Like, and, and again, it's it's not even that like that's wrong. It's just that it it feels like you're changing the set dressing without changing the script. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I have to check myself, too, because I'm like, am I just wanting them to say what I want? to hear them say and is that what i am defining growth as to some degree yes i will mm-hmm. admit that um but in my defense also i almost think i would be my reaction at this point would almost be similar if you said oh my god purity culture is so terrible and if you said that year after year after year versus if you just like hung on tight and said no i still stand by it at this point my reaction's almost the same it's like yeah. okay you know sure doesn't really make a difference. Yeah, that first album was terrible, but what have you done lately? <laughs> you know, right, right. Or like those people who are like, it's like going on year five and they're still trying to figure out how they feel about people being gay, you know, and it's yeah. like, it's it's time. It's time yeah. to move on. It, it really is. And it's again, it's it kind of comes back to this faulty understanding of the ideas of absolutism. And understanding that other people don't think about absolutes. They think differently on a foundational level. It's like, so there's this, there's this really great section in the book. And by great, I don't mean actually qualitatively good. Okay. (laughs) Where he says, um, the phrase that I have written next to it in the margins is like, he used Cobain's name in vain, but like he quotes Nirvana. And he he talks about how um, in Smells Like Teen Spirit, there's a line like, here we are now, entertain us. And he's like, see, that's what the world's teenage culture wants to tell you. It's like, first of all, don't talk about Kurt that way. Don't tell me Kurt is contributing to consumer culture. Right, right. But the whole point of Smells Like Teen Spirit is like, we're having so many of these absolutist points of view being thrown on us that all we've got to do like all we can do to deal with it is shut the lights off and sit back and hope it's good like the point of smells like teen spirit is we're so overstimulated that 
we're just dropping back into the darkness. Yeah. We're dro- dropping back into fine. Just entertain us. I don't care anymore. Like he's bemoaning the exact same thing that is producing people like Harris and St. James and, you know, yes. Uh, so, so, so coming back to what I was pointing out with this is like, he doesn't get, and, and this sort of progressive version of Christianity seems to miss that. I don't even want to tell you not to live your life that way, mm. but I want you to understand that it's not absolute in the other direction either. And just because you think one way doesn't make that thing true. And just because you change the language doesn't mean I don't know that you don't think that's true. Right, right. It's kind of insulting in that way. It's it like, is. I know, I know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, and maybe, you know, to be fair, they may not know what they're doing. Mm. You know, yeah. I, we're we're talking as if it's this sort of like deliberate, like I'm just going to pre, you know, repackage this and give it back to them. Language is powerful, you yeah. know. So it's we can't totally dismiss the importance of that. But on one hand, you know, I I just know that as someone who was there, who experienced what I experienced, who is now you know a pretty critical thinker, I know that my like I said, my bullshit detector goes off a lot. And that, yeah. and you know, you, you asked if I want too much from if I, we asked too much from love. I probably asked too much from Christians, if I'm being honest, because well, you know. I, I think that I think that as people whose literal occupation is questioning the rhetoric and language of culture, mm. I think we are prone to ask too much of everyone. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll, I'll um, take that. Yeah. I had somebody say to me in a conversation at the Bible College when I was on my way out. This was a post you're fired, but I have to finish out the semester kind of uh, <laughs> conversation. I mentioned critical thinking as an important thing. And this individual said to me, you know, the world is so obsessed with critical thinking. You know, being critical is not all there is to the to thinking well. Okay. Like I get what you're saying. And this is kind of like the caveat we're making here where it's like, oh, I don't want to be too hard on everybody. I want to be gracious and understand that people don't know. But but also it's like, all right, you're blatantly misunderstanding me and blatantly mm-hmm. like not take like taking that word exactly how you want it to mean mm-hmm. and then railing against that thing that you are claiming this is mm-hmm. and not actually. That's one of those things that sets off my BS detectors as well is like when you're bemoaning thinking too much. Like, <laughs> right. you, don't think too much or it all falls apart. Well, maybe it should. Yeah. If it can be broken, maybe it's meant yeah. to be. Right. Um, yeah. I found it but on that note of language. You know, I found it really interesting that he in the documentary, he like talks to two different people who and he never takes a stand. Shocking. Um, but he interviews two people who both are like expressing major hesitations about whether or not we should even you not we the collective we Christian should even use the word purity moving forward. Yeah. Which really was interesting to me because I was like, wow. So you are really acknowledging there that there is a wound so deep connected to that word that you don't think it can be healed. Yeah. Um, So there's that acknowledgement, but then there's also still like that one woman was like, you know, still talking with the exact same rhetoric, using all the other words, but saying moving forward, I don't use the word purity anymore. Also, now I'm going to like 
describe to you exactly what I mean by purity. And it's the exact same thing. (laughs) She almost lifted a a few sentences out of his book. Just changing the phrase purity out. Yes. And when she, I I felt too, when, you know, she said um, that, uh, you know, women write her and say, can you not use the word purity in the books? Because this was interesting. We love your ideas and the books but we don't necessarily want to give that specific word to our daughters. I was like, man, those poor girls, they're still going to read all this and it's just going to be some other coded for, you know, I, yeah, no. Well, that's the thing. When you boil, when you boil it down, there's this sort of insincere insincerity towards shifting the language around without actually engaging with the ideas. And that I think is the biggest flaw in the documentary is that like, it kind of ended with this, wow, we really handled that the wrong way. Now we have to say the same thing with different words. What a struggle. Right, right. And I think what contributes to that, and this is sort of the note that I, I think we should like wrap up on, is after this documentary, and the documentary only came out like two, three years ago. Yeah, yeah. At most. Since then, Joshua Harris has divorced his wife. Right. He is not a pastor anymore. No longer sells his book. No longer sells his book. He did giving him credit. That I really respect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, money talks, right? <laughs> he pulled his book from the publisher. That's awesome. That's tangible. Good for you. That's a good piece of action. Sure. That's respectable. Yeah. But he started openly deconstructing. So there's a handful of deconstruction like podcasts that he was on and he was doing all this thing. Within eight months of breaking of divorcing his wife and like being open about deconstruction, he put out a deconstruction course, <laughs> like a how to deconstruct course. Uh, it was called it Reframe <laughs> Your Story, which, if you notice, is the same language as the closing of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, like telling your story. And he was selling it for almost $300. What we're all doing, like, and have been doing, you know, like in for free in our communities and friendship groups. Right. I know. I, I saw that and I was like, I just sort of shook my head and was like, the dude is who he is. You know, it's just like, it's, you know, he's just, this is just a master class on breaking up with Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Again, I don't want to insult the man, but I don't want to like be, you know, uh, ungraceful to him. Mm-hmm. But we see somebody who learns how to market very well, like is brilliant at marketing Christianity and purity culture to the point of like pretty much the pinnacle of success. Oh, you couldn't really get much more successful. New York Times bestselling author mega church pastor married with kid like has it all quote unquote pivots and then finds a way to do the same process just to a slightly different audience arguably the same audience probably because i don't think our like friends who grew up atheists are going to be watching this right (laughs) i take it's all going to be people who want to like somewhat stay christian or stay in that like deconstructed christian or progressive christian circle probably people who were hurt by his book mm-hmm. you know or influenced at least it just goes back to marketing again it goes back to you are 
commodifying people, commodifying people's spiritual journeys. And all of a sudden you're an expert. Like the documentary was, I don't deserve to be a leader. I need to be a student. And then as soon as you, okay, I did my stint as a student. I'm back to being a leader now. Yeah. Like, like a year you later. You should pay me to be a leader now. Yeah. Because I was not humble for a few minutes. This was shocking to me, especially considering, and you know, I, I everything takes me a long time. So maybe who am I to say? But knowing how long my own, quote, deconstruction process has taken, considering how long it has taken me to have the courage to do this freaking podcast, right? Like, right. I mean, if I said to you that day, you know, months and months ago, like, oh, you know, we should do someday a podcast. And you were like the next day, like, I really think we should do this. but. I would have dragged my feet on that probably for years because mm-hmm. it is so difficult to share this part of our life. It's so difficult to talk about these revised belief systems. And the fact that he did it so quickly, again, who cares about sincerity? But like, it's very, it's not at all congruent with my own experience, nor the experience of all my other people, you right. know, who have gone through this yeah. relatively painful process. And again, it's a painful process, no matter how long you're doing it. As soon as you actively begin the process of deconstruction, of even shifting your beliefs, you're encountering pain. He's very right in that comment in the TED Talk and in the and in the documentary that, you know, when you change your beliefs, when you change how you when you're willing to be wrong, it's very painful. I mean, I know we've had this conversation a dozen times about what it's like talking to conservative family members or or Christian family members or what it's like talking to people who still live in that fundamentalist or conservative world. Like, it's exhausting. It's painful. I have so many friends who will no longer talk to me because because I even listen to Rob Bell. I gave Rob Bell space and people stopped Rob listening Bell. to me. And again, yeah. that's that is the person who we were talking about that day on oh, the train. Okay. I, I have like the memory of like where yeah. we were even standing yep. and me in my head going, I'm going too far for a new friend. <laughs> but you know, if you want to know something that moment, I think you're being too hard on yourself. That moment was <laughs> felt a little intense to me. I remember thinking that. But by the same token, it made me go, oh, wait a minute. Am I just doing this on a performative level? Like, what am I really adopting here? It really did help catalyze the next stage of my deconstruction. Like, and I'm grateful for you for that. I think it may have been a, a weird moment, but but in retrospect, it it was very helpful to me because it helped me catch, okay, what's performative? And again, this isn't saying that that Rob Bell is insincere. It's not saying that any of these people are anything. It's not making these judgments about people. But it's articulating a problematic within the framework of changing belief structures in such an insular, propagandized environment. Right. It's very hard. Yeah, absolutely. And in the case of like a Joshua Harris, you know, it feels a little bit like I have to sell the people the new idea. And that is both frustrating and then also in some kind of really sick way, also a little bit freeing because you're just sort Mm -hmm. of like, it's all just a perform. (laughs) You know, I don't know. Like, you know, when you (laughs) strip the like earnestness away, it's like, oh, it really was all just. Yeah. 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 It's those moments that make me feel rather nihilistic about this whole process. Like, oh, I've been agonizing over literally nothing for the past however many years. 
this thing that we're all saying ruined our lives, like it can be revised in a master class in nine months. <laughs> yep. you know, it's like, yeah, that's kind of cool. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and again, once again, to Josh's credit, he pulled it. He yeah. pulled the master class. He's no, he was for a while now has no longer been giving that or offering it. And as you know, released public statements, like, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to overstep my bounds. And again, it, it feels really like politician. I regret that anyone has been offended by my actions at any point in time, no matter what. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, Just cover all the freaking yes. bases, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. See, for me, again, as a kind of private person, this is a missed opportunity on his part. He could have taken those millions of dollars, gone away with his new bald haircut and his a different wife or husband in the future and just never say another word to the public and live mm-hmm. in peace. Right. Yeah. But these people are such suckers for fame and for, you know, engagement with the public. I'm like, yeah. why do you keep doing this to yourself? <laughs> you want to know something? I, I'm so glad you said that because one of the things that I thought was exactly that, like, why are you stepping back into the public light? You, you're not a pastor anymore. Like yeah. no one's going what the hell happened to Josh Harris? You know, like nobody's doing that. You could have just lived your life in isolation with your royalties. Right. And so on the one hand, it's like, oh, kind of cool. You stepped up and you tried to do something when you didn't have to. On the other hand, I just think as somebody who did a stint in Bible college, what other marketable skills do you have? (laughs) Like, I know so many people who have left the, the, Bible college, I'm going to be a pastor environment. And they have had such a hard time finding a job and just like literally just an occupation because of their lack of experience and their lack of study in like quote unquote normal fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like most of them have gone into like cable installation or construction. They do these things that are just like, oh, you don't have any other marketable skills because this is what you've given your entire self to. So it makes sense that you just try to keep doing it. To all those people, there's a place for you in academia. The worlds aren't that different. That's yeah, a conversation no, for a different God. day. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to do an episode about like... I know, I won't let it go. The, the, <laughs> an episode on the similarities between the church and academia and both sides are going to be so pissed and I'm oh so excited. It's gonna, they're going to be so <laughs> mad. Yeah, but it is so true. But you're right. Joshua Harris had the opportunity of a lifetime. I always joke, I don't know if you remember Bebo Norman, the Christian singer. Yes. Um, yes, Bebo Norman. Great folky guy. Um, You know, he put out some great CDs in his early, early 20s. Dealt a lot with anxiety, wrote about mental health, saying to Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Then became a physician's assistant, got married, got a little house in the country and has never been seen again. Like never heard of again. And I'm like, that's the way to do it. Yeah, that's the way to do it. (laughs) I mean, I'm not suggesting Joshua Harris go to med school necessarily, but just let it go. (laughs) right? Let it go. (laughs) We, We release you. We release you to use a Christian phrase. We release you. I think that that is a good place to leave. Joshua Harris, we officially release you. We release you. Uh, And all of you, folks. That's right. All of you, we release you. Thanks so much for joining today's discussion on Oh God, I Forgot About That. 
If you enjoyed the episode and don't want to miss future conversations, please follow us so you get notifications of upcoming episode releases. You can also interact with us between episodes on sites like Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So make sure to search for us and chat with us in those places. Oh, and one last thing. We'd be so grateful if you rated the podcast. It'll keep us visible and ensure that others hear about us. Thanks again.